Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Worm, a Daily Planet Films podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss the hit web serial Worm week by week, arc by arc. My name is Matt Freeman, your host, and dude who secretly bought a cauldron vial to gain enhanced podcasting powers. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott, and unfortunate uh, Case 53. How's it going today, Scott? It's going pretty good, Matt. I guess I didn't get any cool podcasting powers. I mean, you may have, but they're hard to notice under all of the, uh, the roasts. Mon- uh, the monstrous, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's just say I'm made for radio. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right uh, as you said this is the podcast where you a worm expert guide me a first-time reader through wild bill's world of superheroes supervillains and everything in between as i inspect interpret and even speculate on what the story is and where it is going this week we're tackling part two of arc 15 colony which covers chapters 15.6 all the way through the end of the arc um, we got uh, this pretty heavily hinted at in arc one and uh, the first part of the arc, Matt, but these chapters kind of confirm that arc 15 is all about family, about the family you have, the family you choose and the conflict and complications that arise from those relationships. Yeah, we get some, uh, some very impactful interludes here. A lot of them having to do with that exact theme. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited to get these. We had some, we had some great interludes last, uh, last week. And there are there are more to be found here. Um, I'm yeah, some of my favorite parts of the story, actually. Yeah, there's I mean, there's 10 chapters in this and then four interludes. So almost uh, almost a fourth of this this total arc is interludes. And you're right. They're all really good ones. They're really impactful. Um, I think we talk we spent the most time in last week's podcast about um, the uh, the Carol and uh, the. uh, the Brian interludes, and I think we're probably going to do the same here with with these two, at least one of them for sure. Um, yeah. So there's, right. there's definitely a lot, and, and the important part is, I think you know we talk about these interludes and we talk about how they're focusing on different characters, but the thing that always amazes me is how even when they don't feature Taylor at all, um, they tie back to the themes and the events in her stories in a very natural and an organic way, um, and it, it doesn't feel forced. It's it's presenting to you it's telling you this kind of mini story almost but this is important not just to the background of what's happening to the character but to the type of things that the character is going through and i think that's very commendable that wild bow manages to do that yeah you could almost call some of these interludes like a narrative counterpoint where it's it's emphasizing either by comparison or by contrast some particular aspect of taylor's journey yeah absolutely absolutely so with that why don't we just jump right into it yeah, we're going to skip over the comments and questions again because uh, we're time traveling. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Opening on 15.6. Uh, and as we left off last time, Fletchette has Skitter pinned and her superpowered blade to Skitter's throat. Um, she's being extremely suspicious of Skitter because she and presumably the heroes in general believe that Skitter and Tattletail had something to do with what happened with Panacea because uh, they don't know any better. Uh, unfortunately, Tattletail's habit of ruining everyone's lives has backfired on us. Yeah, yeah, I like this touch a lot. I think it's good to remind us how little is actually known about Tattletail's power. And I think if you track this through the book so far, every time we have characters interact with Tattletail, they come away knowing a little bit more about her power. And we see that she, like they're getting closer and closer to actually discovering what she does uh, on, on some level. And I think that's a really cool thread to follow through the story. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That kind of uh, marks out for me the fact that, like, I, I feel like prior to the S9 arc, um, 
the the protectorate and the wards sort of saw the undersiders as like oh that teenage supervillain gang and by the end of this arc they have a very different perspective on the undersiders yeah definitely i mean yeah, they're, 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 they, we, we finished this arc with them having an argument about yeah. whether we need to take these people out um right. and, and we get told several times that with the, the nine gone they're priority one now right. um, which right. is which is kind of crazy these teenagers running around um not really knowing what they're doing and stumbling almost into power um yeah. it, it is incredible the other thing i really like about this moment though is we're seeing once again that taylor's general reputation in the entire cape world is of someone who is extremely untrustworthy. Um, we saw this again. We saw this it, it lasts in the last section at the beginning of arc 15, and we see it again here. And it's something that Taylor like doesn't see in herself at all and gets really frustrated at and like, like wonders like, why don't all you people believe that I'm telling you the truth about stuff? And they reply is basically, well, because of all those other times you lied to everyone. <laughs> and she's just like, yeah. okay, yeah, but besides those, like I'm, I'm right. honest, and it's just really funny to watch yeah. this interaction. Yeah, I only lied for the greater good, but this time I'm telling the truth because, <laughs> honest. trust me, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and and it's something that like you can see, especially in this section, like how frustrated she is. She's like, you know, I don't understand. Like I tell these people the truth, I'm being totally honest with them, and they don't believe me. It's like, yeah, well, that's because your actions have consequences, and you lied to people before. So like, yeah. why why should they believe you in this moment? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So so yeah. On with on with Flechette being being wrong about things, but for good reasons. Uh, she also assumes the best about Armsmaster, and she seems completely unaware that he was basically under house arrest. Um, so it seems like the cover story worked pretty well. If even another protectorate member believed that story. Yeah, this is a really interesting like window into how information is fed to you um, when you work for the government and how you are basically completely reliant on on your central authority figure to feed you information. And you tend to believe that information because it's kind of the only thing you're getting um, because you see it as the morally just authority figure. So why would they lie to me? Um, I think this is a really nice reflection on the end of arc 14 where we saw legend to learn the truth of cauldron uh, a group that he basically was getting all his information from and assumed that they were being straight and honest with him um so we're seeing these these people uh learning about these organizations that that are not being truthful yeah i think that's fair uh yeah so skitter gets a little bit sidetracked at this point arguing with flechette about exactly that um about the profound moral corruption of the protectorate as she sees it in contrast to Flechette's more um, naive take on it. Uh, she tells Flechette about Arms Master's plan to sacrifice villain capes in order to set up Leviathan, uh, which she really wasn't supposed to tell people about. Um, Skitter is not really good at keeping secrets, Scott. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, she, she really only seems to keep secrets until the point where she use, needs to use that secret in one of her plans. Um, I think this ties really well to her general lack of concern about the consequences of her actions and what happens to those to specifically to her and those around her when she does stuff like this um she makes these decisions kind of unilaterally and doesn't seem to worry about what they could do to everyone else and i i like that she seems to realize that she shouldn't reveal the secret like she i think she even says it out loud to flechette like i'm not supposed to tell you this but um but then does it anyway so yeah. again moralization and justification she thinks it's the right thing to do so she's gonna do it yeah it was like a pretty pretty crucial deal that she'd made with uh the protectorate not to talk about that yeah so. i mean this is yeah definitely not <laughs> not something minor yeah yeah so eventually skitter gets around to offering parian 
uh, the money and resources she needs to really take care of her people and, and get them surgery, get them all fixed up from what Bonesaw did. She offers to show Perry in her territory so she can see what she's doing with it. Yeah, and I think Taylor's pretty smart here. Um, she appeals to the exact thing that she knows that Perian would want the most. So she's kind of using her, her toolbox to identify uh, the best way to squeeze on her and, and executing it pretty flawlessly. Um, I, I think it's important to note that this in this opening chapter, I call it opening chapter, it's not really where we're halfway through the arc, but bear with me here. Um, Taylor's making this logical plea that's that's legitimately intended to help protect people. Um, Ballistic is, is storming around, destroying things. She, he's going to hurt Parian if he finds her. She wants to genuinely help Parian out. She feels bad for her. Um, and I think it's important in this moment that we are reminded of that essential good side of Taylor, um, because when we're reminded of these things, it makes things that happen maybe later in this section uh, all the more impactful when we see her behave in ways uh, kind of opposite of this. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that's probably intentional. Yeah, so so Skitter is consistently acting calm through all of this, even though she's pinned to the ground and, and stabbed. Um, and I think this is because she has so many options at this at this point, like where she is with her power. She reminds me of the hyper versatile classes in RPGs like my Necromancer and EverQuest always having like four different ways out of any jam. I just want one episode of the podcast where you don't bring up EverQuest. I'm sorry, Scott. Just, just one. No, nah, I'm just kidding. I love EverQuest. Uh, listen to our episode on it. That was fun. Anyway, yeah. that's like the second time we plug that in this podcast and it will yeah. not be the last one. Um, but the, to me, the most hilarious part about all this and, and, and how calm Skitter is, is that Flechette is, is seemingly like constantly reminding both the other people in the world, in the room, Parian included, that Skitter is under arrest right now. <laughs> like a yeah. fact that neither of them seem to care about. Like, like ser- she's like, seriously, guys, I'm basically a cop here. You're under arrest. You're going to jail. That's the thing that's happening. And, and they're having this side conversation about, um, trying to help each other out and her joining and, and Flechette's just here like guys guys yeah yeah taylor's like rolling her eyes basically yeah so um she also mentions to Flechette that she could just pass a message to ballistic and have ballistic like come in and find them um so she argues that um a fight between Flechette and, and ballistic would be like playing tags with guns which is both highly accurate and also made me chuckle yeah, that's really good imagery. And I think this is the reason why that Skitter knows that she's not actually under arrest here, though, is because despite being on the floor, um, she kind of has the advantage here because her team doesn't have a series of rules they have to play by. So she still kind of has the upper hand in these negotiations. And I think this is this is like the first sign of something we're going to enforce again and again throughout the rest of these chapters, which is the idea that the status quo and the actual rule of law um, in a world with capes is is either woolly insufficient or doesn't even matter because you have these people that don't have to abide by this stuff they have no no there's no limit to what they can do so they don't have to follow these things and i think that's something we hammer home a lot in this in this section yeah we've seen hints of that before but they definitely explicitly discuss it in this section yeah and and, and during all of this ballistic has collapsed like 10 buildings outside poor brockton bay yeah the city really can't catch a break huh yeah. Like if, there, if only there was some way we could convince the mayor to fight for its continued existence, maybe like just hypothetically, like almost murder his son. Yeah. But like what kind of evil psychopath would would volunteer to do that? Well, I'm sure we'll find someone. 
it's funny when we set up uh, <laughs> things that we know that everyone listening to this podcast already knows about. Yeah. All right. So eventually Skitter wears Parian down to Fletchette's hor- horror. Um, so she has Parian call Sierra, probably, I'm guessing, um, and has her open a safe in the lair and take out 200,000 bucks and tells her to transport it to where she can give it to Parian. Yeah, this is, again, another example of uh, Taylor acting pretty unilaterally. And we saw in the last section that uh, Tattletail was making some pretty uh, some group decisions on her own. And now we see Taylor like doing this. She she makes this call. She doesn't fell in ballistic or coil or anyone else on her team. Um, and a situation that affects the entire team is made by one person. Um, so she she feels that she has the authority to do this, even though she probably doesn't. Yeah. So after Flechette and Perry and leave, uh, Skitter extricates herself from her place on the floor. And then we move into 15.7. Um, and you'll have to let me go vomit for a second before I describe <laughs> Skitter's wound here. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, she's got a long <laughs> metal spike basically going through her shoulder joint, piercing the bone. Uh, by using whatever physics-breaking magic Flechette's power employs. Yeah, and it's not even, like, just piercing the bone. It's, like, magically grafted to it, right? Like, it's, like, connected to it at at a fundamental level. Um, Like, there's no clear differentiation between bone and metal anymore. Um, I think this is all really important because we're going to see, like, how... Like, I love the idea of her having these big casual conversations while this terrible injury is being worked on and we'll get to that but like this is a bad injury and she seems pretty unconcerned i mean she's a little bit worried but like she seems like her main worry is calling a doctor that she can trust and not not um i'm gonna die (laughs) right i mean one interesting thing is that she never at any point is like i hope this isn't like a permanent disability that i now have this right piece of metal in my in my body that's going to cause me chronic pain um yeah yeah, so, uh, yeah, like you said, she calls Tattletail and arranges to meet with a medic that's more loyal to Tattletail rather than directly going to one of Coil's medics. So she heads back to her lair, and she finds Brooks waiting to care for her along with Sierra and her prodigal brother, Bryce. Um, apparently, Brooks has an accent. I don't remember him having an accent before. Do you remember that? I don't ever explicitly remember them mentioning an accent, but that doesn't mean uh, that they didn't. So, Warmians, uh, confirm this for us. Yeah, go. It's really important to me. <laughs> uh, while she waits for Brooks to return with medical do- tools, she scans over her territory and notes that there are even more people working there uh, than there were before. She notices some people goofing off, and she tells one of the kids to go yell at them for her. Uh, and then Bryce, who's standing there watching, gives her lip uh, for doing this. Yeah, and this conversation on the surface, I think, seems pretty inconsequential, just like Bryce mouthing off again. Um, but the the point of exchange that I was most interested in on is this idea that why do people insist on testing me, she says. Was it something about being in charge that demanded that they try to establish their dominance? Either way, what did this mean for the city in the long run if anyone who tried to change things for the better was forcing this sort of resistance? And like, I think this is, goes into Taylor's mindset again. Where in her world, I'm trying to help, help, like saying that is enough to where you should never challenge her authority after that point. 
um, that you should never question her motives or her actions once she has told you, I'm here to help. You should just go along willingly with everything she says because she says she's here to help. Yeah, we've been we've been watching her in this position of authority for long enough. I think that we can draw out some patterns, and that is definitely a, a clear pattern is that she's yeah, she's extremely frustrated with anyone who doesn't just go along with it. Yeah, so um, Bryce and Skidder go back and forth for a moment, uh, and then Sierra returns and tries to shut him down. Uh, but it's not just irritation that he's nettling her boss. It's actual fear about what Skidder might do to him if he crosses her. Because at this point, Sierra has seen Taylor uncork on people too many times. Yeah, this is a really great moment. And I think it's more so it's enhanced by the fact that um, that Taylor acknowledges the fear, but like never at least consciously connects it to what she's actually afraid of. Um, like we, we see Taylor several times note that Sierra had fear in her voice when she was saying these things. But she never we never see her think out oh, she's afraid of me. She's afraid of what I will do to her brother. Um, and, and I think that's very interesting that she can see these things but doesn't make that connection. Maybe she's compartmentalizing in a way. Maybe she's just re- refusing to acknowledge it. But it it, it it jumped out of me. Yeah, you're right. And and I, I think she's like, oh, well, I would never hurt Bryce. And it's like, if the circumstances were slightly different, you might actually. Like, right. you like, have done similar things, Taylor. Like, what if Sierra said no to your order? Yeah. Like, what, what, right. what would you do? Because she's she's shown that she feels if someone disobeys her, she has to go above and beyond what we considered normal retaliation to prove, don't do this to me again. So, yeah. fortunately, Charlotte and Sierra have generally followed her direction so far. Um, I'm interested to see what happens when they stop doing that. Yeah. Yes, but uh, so among other things, Bryce does make the point that the people of the city wouldn't need saving if it weren't for capes in the first place. Um, and and like we mentioned earlier, this is a, a note that will recur through the rest of this arc. Yeah, and I think it's really important to discuss this because if we if we look at this at a really high level, we see Taylor's need almost to make the city better, to change things for the better. And like Bryce kind of says, the only the, the only reason that this is even necessary is because of capes. Um, so a cape is trying to fix things using their cape powers. Um, do, isn't that just propagating the issue that caused the problem in the first place? Um, how do we define what is better for the city? Who gets to decide that? Um, won't one cape taking control just encourage more capes to retaliate against them? Like, there's this this cycle that we're seemingly on here, and like the the desire to help the city doesn't seem to in any kind of significant way end that cycle yeah i mean i think the obvious solution is what magneto says you just wipe out all the humans so it's only right. the capes left yeah i'm sure that would stop all the violence because there's no there's no inner fighting in in the capes at all no i've never noticed that <laughs> yeah um and then we have this moment where bryce leaves and and his sister is frustrated with how things are going with him and uh, and she says, I keep having to do that. When do we start being a family again? Um, and Taylor thinks, I'm not the person to answer that question. Um, and, and at this moment, and I think I think I was supposed to feel this way at this moment, actually, considering what comes later. But I was like, dude, isn't it kind of horrible that Taylor hasn't contacted her dad since the nine were in town killing people indiscriminately indiscriminately? Because as a dad, I am folding my arms at Taylor pretty hard right now. Yeah, you fold the shit out of those arms, Matt, because this is ridiculous. I agree. We t- we we hinted towards this a couple weeks ago on the mailbag episode, but I was 
very surprised that Taylor, in all her constant, almost like unending concern for the people of her territory, has seemingly never checked up on her dad, um, never visited her dad, never sent any supplies to her dad, as we'll learn later. Um, she, she's so very protective of these people, but apparently that ends at her father. And that's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like a huge sore spot for her because she could even just like walk near his house and and check him out with with her bugs. But she, right. like her mind flinches away from even that much. Yeah, it's it's too real. It's too much to take. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think, again, here's I think we're going to call out every time in this the rest of this chapter where they use the word family, because this is very deliberate. And this mm-hmm. is this is tying into a theme of family of like she, like she's trying to rebuild her family. Taylor's trying to rebuild her undersider's family everyone's trying to and struggling with their families over and over again and we see these bonds like tested and breaking and trying to get back together and it's like the the message here seems to be that we don't know if this is possible if if in the world of capes can you hold on to your family and it's pretty it's it's a bummer yeah that's that's a harsh way of putting it but accurate yeah sorry so uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, uh, Brooks uh is is now uh, now returns and he's uh, performing horrifying surgery on Taylor to remove the needle that goes through her shoulder. Um as she's fully conscious and attending to various tasks in her territory using multiple swarm clones at the same time. So she's literally like multi multitasking doing multiple interactions with people with multiple swarm clones and while the first swarm clones that we saw her make against leviathan were these vague human-like columns of bugs uh the ones she's making now are actually indistinguishable from just bug covered young women um and and throughout the rest of this arc people repeatedly don't realize that it's not actually her they're talking to uh and this is partially enabled because she's using portable cameras and microphones to allow her to hear and see through the clones and then she uses her swarm voice, which everyone is now used to, uh, to speak through them. Yeah, this was almost a bridge too far for me. This is almost hard to believe that people would not notice. Um, but uh, but on retrospect, I think you can see it. I think it, it says I think it says something about how often Taylor just has bugs crawling over herself in general. That seeing a figure with bugs crawling all over themselves, people are like, "Oh yeah, that's her." Um, and, and, and the fact that she's able to do this is incredible. Like, not only does it show her her multitasking abilities and her ability to kind of leave her own body, um, it's it's so like amazing. And she's able to. I mean, multiple. She she says like there's still limitations to it. Like she says having two conversations at the same time is is almost too much for her. But that Taylor learns, so eventually she's going to be able to do this. I don't know. Maybe uh, like can you like. She, the only thing stopping her from controlling this entire city is her range at this point. Mm-hmm. Like if she could reach out to every corner of Brockton Bay, she, I fully believe at this point she could control the entire city. Yeah. Has there been any reference to those relay bugs that she had from Panacea? Did, did we just assume she doesn't have those anymore? Yeah. That's the assumption I made. Um, okay. I assumed that like Atlas, they were built to not be able to survive after a certain amount of time. And mm-hmm. we did, we saw Brian fix Atlas, but we didn't see anything with those. Um, yeah. I would assume they'd be a priority, but um, I think, I think uh, Panacea left before they were able to do anything. So I assume they're dead. Yeah. But yeah, based on what you said a second ago, I wanted to, to mention the beat a few arcs ago where, where she thinks to herself something like, 
you know, I, I put the bugs between my costume and, and my clothes because the idea of having the bugs crawling on my skin was too much for me to take. And we know for a fact now that she has bugs touching her skin, like, fairly frequently, partially because of what we're seeing now with the swarm clones, but also when her mask was destroyed, she was using the bugs as a mask, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. So and, so, and I think the most incredible part about that is how little we actually see her acknowledge it. The, yeah. Really, the only, the only idea of the full extent of this is when we see her from other people's perspective, because she's yeah. not even thinking about it. It just doesn't even occur to her. Yeah. I have bugs crawling over me. I always do. It's, it's, it's what is this? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, this is, she's, she's got to be such an intimidating, frightening person at this point. Like I can't even fully imagine like even, even with the descriptions from like Sierra and, or was it Charlotte that saw her? One of the two. I think it was Sierra. We were in, in her interlude. Like, even that, I don't think does it full justice of what she must look like in this moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really fun to keep track of the things that she's aware of and then also the things that she's not aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so Parian ends up showing up in her territory to have a look around, and it turns out that she has taken the money from Skitter and given it to her people and then sent them away, but she's going to stay herself. Uh, and, and they talk, or at least Perrion and the Swarm Clone talk. Uh, and Perrion feels really judged by Skitter, uh, but Skitter insists that it's not about that. Um, and then Skitter voices more of the idea that we heard a hint of from Bryce, that the status quo is different now, that there's an inherent power imbalance when a small minority of people have powers. And while this imbalance exists, it will have to be capes who maintain order, if only to give people what they need. And again, like, here's where I think Worm is brilliant. Because while I fundamentally disagree with Coyle's and Taylor's plan to establish themselves as the central authority of Brockton Bay, um, I think Taylor makes a lot of really, really good points here. Um, I I think she's making poor choices, and those choices are going to end up getting a lot of people killed, probably innocent people. But the existence of capes have thrown off the power balance in the world. There is really no status quo. There's no peaceful time to return to. Uh, It's just a series of escalating conflicts. And in that world, the only ones with the power to, to, to accomplish any sort of good are people with powers. So she's, she's kind of right here. Uh, And it's like, it's it's hard. It's hard to see because like I'm reading through this section. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know how to counter these points. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to be like, no, I don't think you're right in that because she seems kind of right. The only the only area that I was that I was able to grasp onto here um, was the fact that this isn't a long term plan. Um, right now, people are desperate. Right now, her opposition is weak. And right now, she is in the best position to help the people of Brockton Bay. But as Perry encounters her, she says, and later. And then Taylor is forced to say that she doesn't know. And, and she doesn't. She honestly doesn't because she has no long term plan. And, you know, we, we see Parian kind of agree to this line of thinking, and we see her very reluctantly agree to Skitter's terms. Um, she says only if Flechette will agree as well. Um, and, and then Parian finishes the conversation with, I hate you. And, and that was answer enough for Taylor. It's like, mm-hmm. I can live with that as long as you do what I want you to. And it's like, th- there's this... this it's such a complicated and nuanced conversation because Taylor's making good points, but she's like... Like Perrion says, you're guilting me into this. You're making me feel bad for not wanting to do this. And I don't think Taylor is consciously doing that, but I just think the way she's presenting the argument is doing that. 
and it's just like it's so tough like you really feel for Perry in here because what choice does she have like what what does she do she could just leave but she feels like she needs to do something as well it's just really really tough yeah and one thing that that I'm noticing kind of as you're as you're going through this is is I'm like Skitter is legitimately arguing in favor of Coyle's plan like yeah yeah she's not this isn't a put on she has at some point gone from like I'm going to do this for Dinah, but I'm not I'm not into this being a, a, a warlord and holding territory thing to being like, this is my territory and I'm going to protect my territory. And this is the way to do it. And and it's inevitable and you can't do anything. You can't do anything about it. Perrin. you got to do it. You got to do what I'm doing, because uh, like she she never quite made the decision, but she's convinced herself that what she's doing is the right course of action, even though that's not why she started doing it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's the whole idea that. Um, there is already a central cape power in this place. Yes, right. yes, they're not they're not helping the city as much as they should be, but they're also having to battle these other people that are trying to take over the city as well. So it's like like this this central power already exists. The protectorate exists, and we're going to learn a lot more about the protectorate uh, in, in the next chapter. But like sh- the whole idea is. I feel that my way is the right way, so I'm going to do it. It's not like the, the argument she's making was almost the same reason why the protectorate was created in the first place. The difference is they went through the government to get their authority. They they went through the channels um, of of civilization to do it instead of just becoming a warlord. Yeah, and I guess the the way the next chapter ends is going to put an interesting contrast on on that statement. So I guess we'll we'll have to bring that up when we get there. Yeah, well, that's um, worm. Like, there's no like yeah. you, if you make a good point on one side, it'll get it'll get conflicted in the other. Things these yeah. things are really complicated. Yeah. So anyway, um, Perrin, you know, Perrin leaves having given her her answer, which is basically yes, um, and then. Uh, so pretty much the whole horrible surgery on her shoulder joint has been going on, uh, including dos- dislocating her shoulder and rooting around inside the joint and grinding away at the metal bolt while she's been having this pleasant conversation with Perry. And that's just something I couldn't move on without noting. Yeah, because I think it ties into her ability to compartmentalize because now she's doing it physically, too. Um, mm-hmm. She's literally almost leaving her body to possess almost these swarm clones where she's not really conscious of her existence as taylor the real person but is being taylor the bug person yeah yeah it's funny because she she has like a laptop open and is presumably like looking and listening and so brooks can see what she's doing i guess i don't know yeah assumingly hearing all these conversations too well maybe not because she's talking with her swarm yeah he she's not actually talking which makes it even weirder yeah (laughs) right that that was just something that i couldn't help but visualize during those scenes so yeah we move on from there into um a very interesting character interesting in her similarities and differences to the character that uh was our protagonist and this character is Rebecca, a teenage girl with terminal cancer, lying in her hospital bed and realizing that she's not going to live much longer. She's tired of being a pillar of strength for her whole family. And after her mother leaves her, her room, she cries, finally mourning her own loss. Oh, look, another reference to family. Just just pointing that out. Yep. Um, yeah, Wild Bill has a real gift at getting us into the mindset of these new characters almost immediately. Um, so much so that I think I've made this exact same point before on a different character, but 
we come into this and we have no idea who Rebecca is. Um, and yet after just a few paragraphs of being with her, we, we sympathize so greatly with her. And I think the reason is because he writes these moments of, of true grief and true almost acceptance of her death in, in such a real way. Like the, the, the things that she points out is that she sees a sign for a fast food restaurant. She's never going to get to eat there again. Never get a special kid's meal. She'd never get to read the third book in the Maggie Holt series or see the movie they were making of the first book. She'd never have a real boyfriend. And I think these small inconsequential thoughts of a dying person are just like so real. Like, I mean, that's like you, you, you tend to think that a person as they're as they're dying would think of the big moments, but it's almost just the small things, like the small things that almost seem selfish on the surface. But it's just like, I don't get to do this stuff. I'm never going to get to do this. Like, what yeah. if what if I died before finishing this book, Matt? I would never get to finish Worm. That I sucks. Know. I don't say that, Scott. <laughs> I'm going to be on a plane in a couple of days. What if the plane crashes? D- don't get on that plane, Scott. <laughs> No, but I just, I love, I love how, like, real and tragic, I mean, this, before we move on to any of the Cauldron stuff, like, there's just, this is just a little vignette of a teenage girl dying, and the tragedy around that, and it's just, like, it it shows to me, this is the only thing of Wild Bows I've ever read, obviously, but it shows to me his ability to, to leave the genre a little bit and just talk about people. Yeah, right. Totally agree. So yeah, so she's she's crying, and then suddenly there are people in the room with her, and uh, we recognize them as the doctor and her young protector. The doctor offers to make Rebecca a superhero, but tells her that the risk is very high, because at this point in time, which is, I believe, the early 90s, uh, most of the doctor's patients become monsters, and many die outright, but one in seven doesn't get any adverse effects at all. And uh, we have this moment... Rebecca extended a hand to touch the photos, but it was herself she looked at, her fingers so bony, her skin mottled yellow with bruising around the knuckles. I'm already a monster. So we're starting to have a lot of characters who call themselves monsters due to tragic circumstances outside their control. Yeah, and I'm really glad you pointed this out because it's something I was starting to notice too. And I think it's something that we're going to see throughout the rest of this this arc. Um, as well as we're talking about family, we we reference the word monster a lot. And we reference the uh, the quest to find who is a monster and who isn't. And there's it's this repeated beat throughout the rest of the story. Um, and, and the other thing I wanted to point out that we see as a repeated beat throughout the rest of this arc is this real moment of desperation. And how tempting things can see when you're desperate and how the choices you make when you're desperate seem to have really bad consequences. Um, And and we see this throughout Rebecca's mini story Um, in this interlude. We see the consequences of the choices she made while she was desperate. But I think we see it later in the arc as well with Taylor and and the choices that she makes uh, in the midst of this big fight where she's paranoid and freaking out and not sure who to trust. Yeah, I'm reminded of a question from the mailbag um, regarding, uh, like, is there some line that you can't cross and still be a hero? And my answer was something along the lines of hero is not a is not a super well-defined word um, and not a super well-defined concept. And, and I have a similar thought about about what is a monster. Like you, you have the people who are who are the least bad, who, who seem the most willing to call themselves monsters. And you have pretty bad people who will insist that they're not monsters. And it just makes me wonder if it's possible to be a hero and a monster at the same time. 
Yeah, I, I think I think it absolutely is. Yeah, I, I like that line of thought a lot. Cool. Well, yeah. So so Rebecca Costa Brown accepts the deal, stating that she would take the deal even if there were no chance of being normal. Um, so later she takes the cauldron vial um, and not only recovers to a healthy state, but she can fly, think faster and sharper than before and can crush concrete with her fingers. So did you, did you guess uh, at what point uh, did you guess that this was Alexandria's head that we're in? Uh, not until this moment right here. Um, right. I honestly assume we were in the head of like one of the travelers or something else um, because I failed to actually pay attention to the dates at the top of the section headings my first time around. Had I been paying attention to the years and those section headings, um, I might have gotten here. But no, I didn't. I didn't see this reveal coming. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I, I didn't either. So, yeah, the doctor ends up asking her for two years of service, after which she can decide if she wants to stay. Which is just like textbook manipulation. Like, it's just two years. Just help us for two years. And then, you know, you can go home to your family. And it's like the whole it's just one more job thing. It's just like yeah. it's it's just a textbook way to manipulate someone into doing what you want them to do. Yeah, that, that's great. I didn't notice that. But you're exactly right. That That is what that is. So in our next section, roughly two years later, young Alexandra meets with Idolin, Legend, and Hero. Um, Professor Manton is also there, along with, quote, the boy with the math powers and another guy who stares into space. Yeah, we also get a name drop for Contessa here, uh, who was uh, presumably the same girl who was in the hospital with the doctor and presumably the same uh, now older woman who uh, met with the Triumvirate in Legends chapter. Um, I'm guessing we got a name, but we still don't know anything else. <laughs> so th there's that. Yep. Uh, I like this exchange um, between Alexandria and Legend because it says more about Alexandria's character than than we've really seen or it shows maybe a side of her. It, it shows. I mean, I'm really interested in how it contrasts and compares to Taylor, honestly. Uh, so so she said she's talking about her costume and it, it being dark gray and, and black and she and she says and it's easier to get the blood out alexandria added legend frowned you get a lot of blood on your costume i hit really hard she said deadpan he didn't seem to appreciate the humor it didn't matter yeah i like i like the taylor comparison a lot here because you're right that alexandria picks a very dark costume a black villainy costume which is the same thing mm -hmm. uh taylor picks and it's for different reasons, I think. I think Taylor specifically picked it because at this point in her life, she was not comfortable in bright colors and positive type of imagery like that. It's just not where she was in her life. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a, a correlation here. And and the idea of, of like not worrying about blood on your costume is great. Yeah, right. Like, I think I've I've compared Alexandria to Superman before in terms of her powers, but Superman would never be like, yeah, I, I have to worry about, you know, splattering people. Like that's <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Not a concern of his. And, and I think, I, as well as be a good reflection of Taylor, I think this is a really good way of directly contrasting who Legend is as a person and who Alexandria is as a person. Because yeah. he did not like that. Like, he did not like the joke. He's not, there's not, blood on your costume is not something that Legend finds funny to joke about. Yeah, right. It's He's probably more experienced and he's probably had to deal with blood on his costume. So. So yeah, um, Alexandria uh, fronts a proposal to the other. Uh, well, they're not the they're not the triumvirate yet, certainly, but to the other capes gathered in the room uh, that they should form an organization under the purview of the U.S. government. 
Uh, so basically, we're watching the birth of the protectorate. And what a birth it is, um, because it's it's birthed as a, a conscious attempt to mislead the government into thinking that they ha- actually have any real oversight in the capes, um, whilst just secretly working to further their own goals. So, yep. yay. <laughs> yay. Yeah, so Alexandra and the doctor argue for the need for such an organization and for the need for Cauldron due to the fact that normal triggers are creating far more villains than heroes. Yeah, and I think this is Cauldron's noble goal and the beginning of the lie that poor legend believes uh, from here on to uh, to hit that moment at the end of the Slaughterhouse-Nine section. Um, so we learned that Alexandria kind of knew this was bullshit from the start, but no one else did. Uh, at this point, Eidolon does not know. So yeah. um, that's very interesting information. But th- not only did Alexandria know, but she was kind of in on it from the beginning. It was her decision. It was her strategy. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, she has an eight-stage plan for integrating parahumans into society. And she mentions... Um, an idea that obviously turns into the wards along the way. Another tranche of her plan is that Rebecca Costa Brown and her civilian identity will be in a position of power in the government, working on behalf of her plan in synergy. Yeah, and I think the integration strategy is something that we've heard Pigot talk about before when she was talking to Weld about his importance as a member of the Protectorate and, and as kind of a, a, a symbol of... of accepting capes into society even ones that look weird um matt i can't remember if we've heard the name rebecca costa brown before it, outside of this chapter it sounds like it sounds really familiar to me but maybe i'm just making stuff up yeah so so i i thought that we had heard the name before now too but i like did a, a google web search thing and I, I couldn't find it in the story prior to this point so if anybody knows if we're going crazy or not please point to where that would be <laughs> yeah that would be great yeah so um doormaker is revealed to be the cape who is the boy with the thousand yard stare so he, he's the cape who keeps making the portals that we've seen cauldron using yeah and this is kind of the entire key to them being so safe and confident as an organization is all connected to this one guy which makes you think uh, if his powers were specifically designed for this purpose or if they just got really lucky with their early vial testing yeah i mean i, I think it's a uh, <laughs> A, a beat that's easy to skip over the fact that like the portal he's basically like yeah this is a door into another earth entirely yeah it's, it's and just... he seems to have like a labyrinth level of uh disconnect from mm-hmm. himself so obviously at least to me we're seeing the effect of these powers has on your mind with mm-hmm. these kind of weird powers um and they're both uh very similar in that she kind of goes to another world too she just brings the stuff from that world here mm-hmm. um, yeah Totally. Yeah. Um, so we're getting a ton of, of uh, backstory questions answered here, but we're still being teased because when everyone leaves, except for the doctor and Alexandria, Alex- Alexandria mentions, oh, you, you didn't mention our, our long-term plans. Yeah. And this, this got my, my brain turning, Matt, um, because originally we, we were of the idea that the, the noble goal was uh, to make sure there weren't enough good capes and to make sure they could fight back about against the Endbringers. But at this point in the story, uh, the timeline, the Endbringers have not shown up yet. Um, so the, the long-term plans are clearly not just that. Uh, my guess at this point that if Cauldron is not fighting against evil capes, obviously not fighting against the Endbringers specifically, um, that maybe Cauldron's battle is more with the source of all these powers, um, whatever those multi-dimensional beings we keep seeing in the trigger visions are, 
Um, and this kind of ties into what Taylor was talking about in the last chapter, that the only thing capable of restoring order to a world of capes is a cape. So maybe Cauldron's thing is uh, to defeat the source of this power, we have to find a way to make strong capes to fight back against it. I don't know. That's my plan. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. If 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 this source of this power is by itself inherently bad or not, or it's just human nature that we take this thing and twist it to our terribleness. But that's that's my running theory, at least. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so four years later. And Alexandria, joined by the rest of the Protectorate and some local heroes, watches a 40-foot-tall, 45-foot-tall monstrosity emerge from the Earth. One-eyed, horned, covered in obsidian, Behemoth strikes down capes from a distance with lightning and fire. Uh, and aside from being giant and inbringer tough, he's also a dynakinetic, meaning he can manipulate energy of various forms, and he can also violate the Manton limit. Yeah, at first I was all excited because... The first thing Behemoth did was use fire, and it tied into my each one of them is an element type thing um, that I guessed when we saw Leviathan. But then he started using lightning and hitting really hard, and that kind of got thrown out of the window. But um, this is still really cool, and I really appreciate how we get to see this battle from the perspective of people who have no idea what the hell Behemoth is. Um, like I think we see Alexandria in this moment assume that it finally happened, and a super powerful cape was created uh, naturally that's stronger than anything cauldron can do. Um, obviously we know this isn't true. They were never human. Um, so it's not just someone triggering to have this power. Um, but it's this really cool moment where they're like, this thing arrives and they try to fight it and they're like destroyed. Like so many people die in this moment. It's the first time an Endbringer showed up. Yeah. I remember this, this scene being really effective, uh, the first time I read it and just really feeling this sense of, of despair and 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 shock um as you know she but like you get the sense that Al even alexandria isn't used to to like watching her subordinates just drop like flies around her um and uh yeah. and, and and you really feel kind of the hopelessness that these inbringers are meant to embody yeah you get the idea that at this point in the story n there was nothing this powerful like that the, the triumvirate existed and were successful because they were manufactured to be powerful and mm -hmm. so they were the most powerful thing on the planet and then suddenly that that whole status quo shifts with this this new arrival of this new thing and yeah it is tragic it is this this sudden realization amidst death and destruction that i'm not the most powerful thing on the planet anymore yep yeah so yeah, we skip away from that. We're just kind of skipping forward through time, if that's if that's not clear. Uh, and and Alexandria is swearing herself in, uh, along with the rest of her team, in some sense officially legitimizing the protectorate under the aegis of the U.S. government. Yeah, it's just like the illusion of security. We're here yep. for you, U.S. We're working with you, but we're we're not really. Yep, just like how the real world works. <laughs> um, <laughs> and now we get to see the video that to go. Uh, we get to see what was happening in the video that Pigot was watching uh, from Alexandria's point of view. Um, so Alexandria arrives at the scene and, and is furious that they're keeping Siberian in place by letting her munch on a victim. And she's thinking, I'm in this to save lives, sacrificing someone for the sake of the plan. She knew it made sense that it was even necessary, but it left her shaken, a sick feeling in the pit of her stomach. So does this remind us of anyone, Scott? 
Yeah, I think her name rhymes with uh, Schmaler. Mm. Um, I, I do, I do love this though because we see in Alexandria that you don't you don't jump down the Stark path all at once. It's you go step by step. It's slowly. It starts with these half truths, with these these lies that you're telling people, and then as things get harder and more desperate, you take small steps that are justified in the moment, um, but lead you further. And further down this um for the greater good again and then what happens well we'll just we'll just see where this interlude finishes that's right yeah so siberian as we already know owns the four powerful capes about as hard as we expect uh she kills hero immediately yeah she rips him in half and i think this is a really good reminder just how like smart and lucky our heroes were um, in the Nina section by the fact that their smart way of approaching Siberian and the fact that Siberian was just playing with Amy rather than outright destroying her because damn Siberian it's easy to forget because our heroes survived against her but she is powerful yeah yeah and just because we don't get to see Idolan do his thing very much I'm gonna pull out just this this section um Idolan was trying to heal Hero to teleport people out of danger when Alexandria and Legend proved unable, and changing up his abilities every few seconds to throw something new at Siberian in the hopes that something would affect her. She waded through zones of altered time, through lightning storms and force fields, tore through barricades of living wood, and slapped aside a projectile so hyperdense that its gravitational field pulled cars behind it. Yeah, so Idolan's pretty strong. <laughs> I'm still not entirely sure how his power works, Matt. So he just automatically gains whatever power would be best to handle the current situation. Um, does he pick them? Can he only get one at a time? What's the limitation with this? I mean, I think just going on, on what you should know now, um, he, he does seem to, to need to switch them out. And then also there's what he says a bit later in this in this where... Uh, uh, or maybe it was when he was talking to a legend earlier. I guess it doesn't matter. They're the same scene um, where he where he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll try. But my power doesn't give me what I want, only what I need. Um, yeah, and he, I guess he, that's kind of open to interpretation, obviously. But that's that's what we know at this point. He's like a character arc in a person. <laughs> he's trying to get what he wants, but he's conflicting yeah. with what he needs. Well, you can't always get what you want, Scott. OK, I'm not. But if you try some. No, no, no. <laughs> Stop it. All right, all right. So um, Alexandria gets too close, and Siberian rakes her face, carving out her eye. Um, yeah, yeah it's been so long since she'd felt pain. Yeah, I love that quote. I love it's so re- it's a great beat, and it's something we had technically already seen before because because we we knew about it for a while. We saw it through the video, but the fact that we're in Alexandria's head in this moment, the shock that she faces when she sees that she's been injured for the first time in like years. Um, it just really helps sell this and make this point land all the more. Yeah. So, yeah, later in the hospital, Alexandria and the doctor discuss uh, that they know that Siberian is William Manton's power uh, and that Siberian is probably a projection uh, based on the vial that he stole. We also learn something more of his background, uh, that he went through a nasty divorce and he gave his daughter a cauldron vial and that didn't work out uh for, for whatever reason. I don't know if we're clear on that. And then he escaped with a vial of his own. Yeah, this is really interesting because we learn that he's not just projecting a woman, like he's not just projecting himself as a woman, but specifically projecting what his daughter looks like. And at first I was like, that's really creepy because 
she's naked. So is he sexualizing his daughter? Um, but then I, the more I thought about it and I went back and checked, like we, uh, Siberian is naked a lot, but it's never, it's never in like a, a really hyper-sexualized kind of way. Like there's never really any stops to point out that she's naked or to draw attention to it in any kind of creepy kind of way. Um, so it's, it's just stated matter of factly. So that's good, I guess. Yeah, I kind of think of it as like, you know, go out of your way to point out that a tiger is naked. It's, right, it's, right. Just, it's just a tiger. Yeah. And that's kind of how people see her, I think. Yeah. And also it, it makes sense why uh, he was so um, motherly or I guess fatherly to Bonesaw, um, because if, if he is dealing with whatever happened to his daughter, he sees this young girl that he wants to take under his wing and, and uh, protect. So that makes sense, too. Yeah, I think that's definitely definitely in the mix somewhere i agree yeah so we also see that idolan probably is in on the mysterious other plans and projects uh, that uh, the doctor and alexandria are up to because his power tipped him off at some point yeah when we first learn the truth of this through legend's eyes there's a real sense of betrayal here but we kind of learn here that idolan like was never intended to know about this stuff but his power just like informed him of it so they had to fill him in or or risk losing him um I think the important thing here, though, is is not just that he learns about it, that he continues to participate, uh, even though he knows. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, so the doctor wants to leave Manton be, and Alexandria is horrified by this. So the doctor's reasoning is she thinks Siberian roaming around will send people flocking to the protectorate, and Alexandria won't accept this, and then the doctor plays down her suggestion, like, oh, yeah, I didn't really mean that. I must just be <laughs> emotional right now. Yeah, she she plays it down... Um, but we see that Siberian is still out there roaming free. They have not uh, seemingly mounted any kind of specific get Manton strategy. Um, in fact, the fact that they've kept this so secret means that anyone trying to track down and defeat the Nine um, might have died because they didn't have key information. So, I mean, this is this is kind of a big deal to withhold this this information. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it is another slide down the slope for Alexandria, I think, because she notes the falsehood in the doctor's body language, but she specifically chooses to ignore it. She she writes it up to her eye being damaged, so she's still getting used to having one eye, and she's just misreading it. She explains it away, um, mm-hmm. which is something that Taylor does all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the doctor like kind of placates her, saying that Manton is the exception to uh, what they're trying to do, not the rule. Um, we know this to be false, and Alexandria doesn't really believe it either but she doesn't do anything about it she continues to go along with it yeah yeah there's uh i i think just 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 what you said like all they had to do was tell the rest of the protectorate oh yeah by the way siberian is a projection there's there's probably some some person around her who is vulnerable that would totally change the strategy of how people deal with siberian yeah um, but they did they didn't tell them that people so. people definitely died because they did not share this information good right. people yeah totally so later, I mean, I, I think I think that was kind of a watershed because later we see Alexandria fly into a war zone, pick up a dying boy and offer him the same choice that she was given years ago. Do you want to live? Um, and he asks in, in his language, basically asks, are you an ang- are you an angel? And she replies, no, not not an angel, which I, I just love that exchange. Yeah. Um, and and so- as she. 
as she as she puts him as she takes him she thinks to herself but they would be alive that was the most important thing they had been destined to die in places where the wars never stopped or the, where plague was rampant rescued from the brink of death so so like all the capes we've seen alexandria has in, in her case not a specific trauma per se but a background that biases her in a certain direction so it, it the result is that she has no compunctions about scooping up these people and subjecting them to experimentation because to her mind it's better than the inevitable death they would have met and yet again because this is worm we can't say for a certainty that she's totally wrong yeah for sure and i agree that this is a part where we're really supposed to feel like a watershed moment for Rebecca for Alexandria and how she has kind of lost her way a little bit here because the thing about this whole idea that life is better than death no matter what the form is that that choice needs to be left up to the one whom it'll affect Alexandria is making that choice for these people she's stripping them of their agency and forcing them to suffer in the name of good without giving them that option um the results of this is is, is horrible mutation um memory loss um, these people are abandoned and, and ridiculed by the public at large, um, and she's making that choice for them by arguing that um, being alive is better. But, you know, to quote Pet Cemetery, Matt, sometimes dead is better. And I'll have to, uh, I'll have to read that sometime. I can't believe you've never seen or read that. I, That's incredible. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 think, I, I think there's something just so monstrous about this idea that she sort of gives them the choice of, of do you want to live and and then erases their memory of ever having made that choice so they basically have to live the rest right. of their lives assuming they live well and live the rest of their lives as a monster yeah. with no memory and it's a bullshit choice too because you're not really telling them the entire information like right. if you tell a dying person do you want to live yeah they th- yes they're going to make that choice it's a choice made in a moment of desperation which is a point i've been hammering home again and again and so yeah they're going to make that choice but you're not f- you're, you're intentionally leaving out the most important parts of the choice yeah. which are the consequences of it and and we know that she's aware of of this hypocrisy because she thinks to herself and here i am administering poison with a smile on my face she turned and walked away, which is and, and that's that's what she was thinking of the people who were administering chemotherapy to her. So she's she's become basically she she, she has become the monster that she was kind of afraid of being. And, yeah. And she, but she just goes on. Yeah. And that's I think that's the most important thing is not it's not enough to come to this realization. You have to act on it. And mm-hmm. she's not. She's no, she knows it's wrong, and she's doubling down on it. And I think, right. again, this is something we do see in Taylor a lot. We see that sometimes, as good as Taylor is at compartmentalization, there are times when she realizes what she is doing is wrong, but she finds a way to explain it away anyway and, yeah. and continue to do it. And that's, that's the most dangerous part about this whole thing is that you, know, you, you, can, you can mess up. You can make a mistake. You can make a bad choice. And you learn from it and you grow from it. But if you refuse to acknowledge it on that level, and if you decide to double down on it, then you are kind of becoming a monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, then we get to see later uh, the exact same meeting with Legend uh, from Legend's interlude, but from her perspective. Uh, and mainly here, what we learn is that uh, for one, Idolin's power is waning. And he, and he apparently needs these booster shots. Um, and also that they were all aware of Legend's skepticism and suspicion of them. Uh, and they were all kind of acting to deceive him intentionally. 
Yeah, and the, the the weirdest part of this to me was that they still think even if Legend finds out the truth, he wouldn't actively move against them. And I really hope they're wrong. <laughs> I really hope they're wrong um, because I like Legend so much. But I'm really interested in the idea of Eidolon's power waning and why this is. Um, we've already mentioned that he looked like a middle-aged man. Um, so I, it gets me wondering, was he like the first successful vile cape or was he just one of the original capes and powers as you age start to wear off and go away? Um, because we know he's a middle-aged man, could he be like the oldest cape on earth? Um, uh, that's a very interesting train of thought and I hope we find out more about it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so, so finally, um, they're discussing things they're, they're saying, you know, a lot, it looks like a lot of our plans don't seem to be working. So that just leaves kind of the backup plan, which is Coil. Yeah, uh, he doesn't even <laughs> know it, but everything rests on his shoulders. And here we are. Here we are. This is what we've been leading up to the whole time. The long path of Alexandria, the hero who's doing this to help people, the woman who created the, the, the and proliferated the organization that stands for hope and heroism in the world, um, that, that slammed her fist on the table at the idea of letting someone like Siberian roam free, has now put every part of her plan on the shoulders of a man like Coyle. Um, a man who is dangerous, corrupt, who who tortures people for fun because he knows he can get away with it, who kidnaps children and drugs them into subservience, who lies and manipulates his way into money and power. She has put everything on him. And and this is this is what happens, Matt. This is what happens when you stretch your moral goals for the greater good. You make small compromises, choices in moments of desperation, choices that have consequences you couldn't begin to understand or calculate in the moment. And I think Alexandria is a good person who did bad things for a good reason. And now she's here, putting the fate of everything she's worked on on the shoulders of a man like Coyle. And mm -hmm. look how much that ties into what's going on with Taylor. I mean, yeah. like we could spend the rest of the podcast talking about how these two things specifically relate. But Taylor is putting everything on Coyle, putting everything on this interaction with Coyle. And it's so beautifully wound together and wrapped up. I love it yeah yeah I, I could i could go on like you said for quite a bit about this but uh there's more than enough in the rest of this arc to that, that we could tie into that so so i'll, I'll just yeah, move ahead yeah. that's fine yeah, so, so we move into 15.8 uh with we're back with skitter and she's calling coil uh, and telling him that parian is interested in joining his organization uh, but coil does not like that parian won't officially call herself part of the group because it kind of defeats the purpose of exercising and demonstrating total control over the city but he does concede that he'll reach out to her through a proxy yeah i, I really like this moment because it does show this obvious disconnect between what coil is trying to accomplish and what taylor thinks they're trying to do because for taylor it's all about that end goal it's all about help people control the city which will help people and give people what they need in Taylor's mind, Parian's compromise helps with that because she's going to protect her territory. She's going to help her people there. It doesn't matter to her whether he's she's officially in Coyle's group or not. But that's not what Coyle's trying to do here. That's not what his end goal is. And the fact that she still can't see that is like really frustrating. It's like, Taylor, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, she she ends up having to use Atlas to help her get dressed because her shoulder wound hurts. Um, and there's apparently there's still a dart in the bone it's just shaved down to the point where it's less obstructing um th this would be horrible 
<laughs> so uh, yeah, so yeah, I know from experience that this would be horrible. Yeah, I, I think sometimes we forget because like an injured Taylor is so effective that we forget how much constant pain she must be in for all this stuff. And I think yeah. this is something to think about as we get into the battle scene that's coming up here. Mm -hmm. So she's thinking to herself, uh, my dad hadn't heard from me in some time. If I died, well, perhaps not as great a shock as it might otherwise be. I knew it would hit him as hard as my mom's death had, but you know, th that he'd be devastated. Uh, but again, he'd recover. Uh, oh, he'd recover. Well, that's all fine then, Taylor. Okay, yeah. Th thanks, Taylor. Yeah, he's doing... From all dads everywhere, thanks. <laughs> yeah, he's doing great. He's fine. Uh, yeah. This is a really good reminder that, once again, Taylor has failed to actually consider her father in just about every single choice she's made so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so she flies on Atlas to join Trickster and Genesis in their attack-slash-meeting with the mayor. Uh, so just to refresh everyone, the point here is they're they're going to confront the mayor and convince him that he needs to argue in favor of the continuation of Brockton Bay uh, uh, in Washington. Uh, so the plan, yeah, uh, is is he has to uh, communicate the right message. Yeah, and I think it's really important we keep that in mind as we work through the events of this next scene, because Taylor's not here to save a person. She's not here to protect her people. She's here to intimidate an authority figure. There's no real noble goal here. It's just a means to an end. It's it's gangster work. Uh, it's not great. Yeah. Yeah, I like your I like your description of it as as gangster work. This is very, very low for her. And, and she's so distracted. Um that she's not even thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she's being ultra paranoid because she knows that Coyle wants her dead. Uh, because remember last last week we learned that Tattletail is absolutely certain that Coyle wants her dead and is absolutely certain that Coyle's gonna try to kill her, probably on this mission. Um so she creates multiple high fidelity swarm clones and places them here and there around the mayor's uh property, and she sends one of them to go interact with Trickster and Genesis. Uh, who is in creature from a Japanese horror movie form. <laughs> I really like that. The, 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 the things she comes up with are so incredible. It's so yeah. good. Um, I, I still really can't get over the fact that they're so used to seeing Skitter with bugs swarming all over her that a copy of her body made entirely of bugs is not noticeably different to them. <laughs> like, lis like, listen to this, like, centipedes and bugs chained end to end for her, the hair. Larger bugs formed the bulk of the legs, torso, and the core of the head. Smaller bugs filled the gaps, while flying insects clustering together formed the arms and parts too unwieldy to su be supported by the rest. Like the face. Gross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. So gross. I love to see this in CGI. I mean, I mean, my imagination is probably sufficient, though. Yeah, so, so Trickster points out the mayor's house. Skitter scouts it, but has a bit of trouble doing so, because unlike the rest of Brockton Bay, uh, the mayor's house is not completely infested with bugs already. And she finds at the dinner table the mayor, his wife, a pair of twin daughters, uh, the son, and another young woman who isn't necessarily expected to be there. Yeah, so there are kids there. There, this, this man's family is there, and they see this as a good thing because yeah. it'll our plan will work better because their family's there. Right, because Trickster's plan is basically scare the crap out of the family, and then deliver the message. And Taylor doesn't like this, as we expect her not to. But it isn't really a good position for her to object strenuously with the threat she's currently under. Um, and it's, she she's more she's paying more attention to wondering if Trickster is the one who's gunning for her 
um, noting how easily it would be for him to kill her with his power. Yeah, and despite all this, despite all these warning alarms going off, Taylor continues. Um, this, despite that she's in this compromising situation, there's family there, the general ickiness of the plan in general, which she seems certainly aware of, she continues. Because, again, in moments of desperation, we make bad choices. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, she's, she's saying, basically, you know, we're not going to hurt them, though, right? And Trickster's like, right. And then she thinks, well, well, I could do that. It wasn't so different from what I'd done on my first job with the Undersiders. I'd terrorize hostages for a greater purpose. And I could do the same with a family for the same reason. <laughs> so, so she's now justifying a terrible thing by placing it in context of other terrible things she's done that she ended up regretting. Oh, this is okay because I did a similar bad thing before. <laughs> And this is what we talk about when we say that the actions we do move the, that yardstick that measures the limits of your morals every time you do it, that you, there's a new status quo as far as that. Because once you've justified an action once, it becomes easier and easier to justify it again. And that's what Taylor is doing here. And that is so dangerous. Yeah. So Trickster, as they're preparing to attack, he criticizes how slow she seems to be with getting her bugs ready. And she calls him out on being hostile, and Trickster admits to being irritated with her for stepping on Ballistic's toes. Uh, and this exchange culminates in her admitting that the skitter standing with him is a swarm clone, and then pointing out another swarm clone and saying, that's the real trick. The, the, that's the real skitter. Yeah, meanwhile, she's just sitting in a forest with a laptop on. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's really easy to understand how angry Trickster is with her in this moment, because I think if the Travelers had tried to do a very a similar thing that she did, um, if they did that to the Undersiders and Taylor found out about it, imagine how pissed off she would be. Like, she'd probably refuse to work with them anymore. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, so yeah, Genesis, they basically, they attack. Genesis flies her terrifying form in through the window, and then Skitter follows with her swarm. Uh, which she then materializes into another clone once she's in the dining room. Trickster enters as well, and he speaks for the group. Uh, the young man of the family surreptitiously tries to use his phone, and Skitter uses uh, webs, spider web tied to Atlas, to yank it out of his hand. I don't know why, but the image of a giant flying beetle yanking an iPhone out of someone's hand is the most hilarious thing in the world <laughs> to me. I burst out laughing. Awesome. So eventually Skitter notices that the family seems more angry than scared and then figures out why this is and tries to signal uh, Trickster with her bugs, but he doesn't see it. Um, and he takes one of the twin girls hostage and then finally sees the message, but too late because the older boy is Triumph and the girl is either Prism or Ursa Aurora. Uh, Skitter's not sure at this point. Triumph takes out Trigger, uh, Trickster surgically with his superpowered shout. This opens up a lengthy fight where Skitter is basically remotely dueling these two heroes, figuring out their strengths and weaknesses on the fly, while also trying to rescue uh, Trickster. Yeah, and just like every fight we cover here, um, we're going to deal with this rather quickly. Um, we'll just note that, that the action here is cool, but we're only going to really stop to discuss the important character beats uh, within this action, because just describing action by itself is kind of boring. Yeah. Yeah, so we move into 15.9. Um, and, uh, one, one, as you said, character beat is that, uh, in the course of, uh, explicating her analysis for figuring out who the capes in the room were, we see 
that she clearly doesn't know that Battery is dead. Yeah, and this made me really sad. Um, I, I pondered aloud on the podcast for the first time. Uh, we learned of Battery's death. If Skitter would take some level of responsibility for it, if she found out about it, that was a hypothetical question. Of course she would. Um, but we we see that she still doesn't know in this moment, and this guilt uh, could potentially be saved for a later date. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the, the combat goes, she she catches the girl with the tripwire and starts binding her with silk. Um, we see shortly that the girl is prism when she finally uses her power to create duplicates. Uh, she ends up having to sting triumph more and more fiercely, including injecting him with venom from the wasps, which she usually doesn't do. And ultimately she buries him under bugs and just goes to town on him. Um, and that, that seems to subdue him. Uh, Skitter comes in on foot. So she's been doing all that with her, with just her bugs, but then she comes in on foot to retrieve, uh, the unconscious trickster, um, Prism escapes from her confinement. The two of them duel. Uh, to me, the most interesting bit here overall is that she's just having she, she's she's having to reverse engineer how Prism's power works, um, like on the fly. And also, she seems to have leveled up in her combat skills again because she basically trounces Prism and Triumph. Um, and that's even with the fact that she's exposed her real body, which she doesn't even have to do. Yeah, and let's not forget that she's injured here. Um, and it's it's very interesting because as most parahumans fight and get hurt, their general effectiveness lowers with each injury. Um, injuries really don't do anything to Taylor. She's as effective with her power with a broken arm or a broken leg or whatever. Um, and it's really quite quite astonishing that her arm is basically useless at this point, but she's still so good at what she does. Um, and, and I totally agree that... that Taylor utilizing her toolbox to figure out Prism is a really, really fascinating read. Um, you kind of see her work step by step through what uh, what her clones do and what they don't do. Um, and she's she, you're right. She's alone here with two pretty effective capes um, with all the advantages on their side. They have time on their side. Like all they have to do is wait her out. Um, so the, the fact that she fares so well here is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of in our, our very first episode of this show when we were talking about how uh, how bug powers don't seem that strong and don't seem that impressive and, and how, like, it, it was kind of a good choice because I, I think I said something along the lines of, like, if if she ever does become strong with this power, it's going to be a brutal slog. And, and I think that at this point, Taylor has earned her... Um, her power basically you know <laughs> she's, yeah. she's kind of earned her impressiveness level oh yeah absolutely and i think that's that's the most important part right like i think we've had a slow build-up to stuff like this it's not just overnight taylor became good and and could do all these things with her power it's she's learned and she's continually learning and she's continually finding new things to do um and that's very natural and realistic and so it it doesn't seem once again, Mary Sueish, that she just knows how to do all these things. Totally. Yeah, so, so finally she baits Prism into consolidating into a particular body, and then she makes that body fall awkwardly off the roof using preset silk lines and injuring her, actually, we find out later. Um, Skitter then makes her way over to Triumph and finds that she uh, may have gone too far in a few places. Yeah, that's putting it really fucking mildly, Matt. Yep. So the, the mayor comes out with a shotgun, and uh, makes it, and she makes it clear to him that his son will die unless he complies with her demands. Uh, pretty horrible, actually. So yeah. she, I cleared the bugs away from Triumph, giving the mayor a visual of his superhero son lying on the ground struggling. 
To make his struggles a little more pronounced, I briefly increased the pressure, shifting the bugs to limit the available oxygen. I wasn't sure exactly how much danger he was in, but he wasn't doing well. As much as I wanted to pressure the mayor, I was ready to apply the EpiPen as soon as uh, uh, the second triumph's breathing slowed down enough. Um, so, yeah, we're just systematically crossing these thresholds, aren't we? This, this just complete recklessness with this guy's life here. And he's clearly not somebody who deserves it, at least as far as she knows. Yeah. I think this is another really watershed moment uh, in Taylor's uh, journey, as we'll call it. Um, <laughs> on the back end, like this has been an arc all about family and the bonds of family and the connections that drive us. And we see in this moment Taylor torturing a son to scare her, his father into compliance. And, and again, let's be reminded here that the end goal is not a noble one. It is a gangster move, like we said, um, to to let the government of the city know who's really in charge, to pressure them into voting a certain way. All while they're, they're not, they weren't 100% certain if the mayor was going to not vote their way in the first place. It's just, we need insurance that he's going to say, so, so we need to do this. And in this moment, Taylor tortures and nearly kills an innocent man. Um, the, the mayor of Brockton Bay has not done anything to Taylor, and his son certainly has not um, done anything. So in this moment, we see her do this, and we can try to explain it away. We can say, yes, she was in a really bad state. She was very paranoid. She was very focused on the potential threat from Coyle while throughout this mission, so she wasn't focusing as much as she was. And she was desperate, and she was reckless, and she made a bad choice. But these are just excuses. They're not real reasons, and they don't erase what she just did here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, suffice to say, he's he's rapidly getting worse and worse, and then, and then at a certain point, he, he's basically an anaphylaxis, and he's she 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 she, thinks, she says he's almost stopped breathing. I said, almost in shock at what this had come to. I I, <laughs> I have to point out the the word the, the sentence structure there at what this had come to. Yeah, it's it, like like passive voice right. with with no yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's not like the situation just happened. You did this, Taylor. You did right. this. And yeah. for what? Why? Why did you do this? To ensure that Coyle doesn't abandon Brockton Bay because if it gets condemned he'll leave so you can save Dinah? How? How how does this help you save Dinah? What's your plan to get Dinah back? What's your great noble justification here? There there isn't one. This is just, she's backed into a corner, she's desperate, and she doesn't know what else to do when she lashed out. And that lashing out almost gets someone killed. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so oh, the next chapter, I'm sure, will be much more cheerful, though. So we move into <laughs> 15.10. Uh, Skidder flees the mayor's property on foot with Atlas carrying the unconscious trickster. She's just a roiling mess of thoughts of emotions here because... She realizes, in some sense, the gravity of what she just did, and it does bother her for a while. And then she kind of disconnects because she's running through these dark woods and feeling out ahead of herself with the bug senses. And uh, she just kind of lets herself stop worrying about it. Yeah, and it's amazing, right? Because you see her work through her cycle. Um, she cycles with reasons for why. And the first thing she does is try to blame the mayor. Um, yeah. <laughs> she, damn him. How big was his property? All he could, he could still afford to hire someone to cut his grass, eat a nice dinner. He could do this while everyone else was suffering. 
Um, luckily, this doesn't work because it's total fucking bullshit. How dare uh. you, Mayor, eat dinner? I hope your son dies. <laughs> like, it, it's nonsense. But you can see her trying to find an excuse to, to search for a reason. And when when she she realizes she can't do that, she zones out and she compartmentalizes and she literally runs away from her problems. Um, I, I talked last week about in the in the Brian Taylor scene when Taylor says that uh, starts talking about how she shrinks the world to make her problems seem small and manageable. And she uses the, the sheer number and size of her bugs to do that. And I said that I was a little surprised by that because I had never seen Taylor talk like that. And I realize now that she was just describing her compartmentalization in a way that makes her sound good. Um, it's not that she's seeing the world as big and, and shrinking her apart, her, uh, her, uh, her perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Her problems and her perspective small. It's just her literally escaping and it's, it's running from her consequences and her decisions by running into her bugs. And she does that with just jogging here. And it's like, like, I'm so mad at her in this moment. Like, I'm so furious with her. And, you know, the the people that think we're being too mean to Taylor are probably not going to like this episode because it's been a lot of that. But I am so angry with her in this moment that she did this again. And she just keeps doing this. And it's so frustrating. Well, I think the book is very clearly pointing us in this direction at this point yeah, in time. Because, I think so, I mean, too. And, 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 we, and it's not like things get better at this point. Like, she's she's just a mess right now. Like she's, yeah. she's, she's on some level aware that she's a mess right now. Um, but she just, she kind of has to keep moving forward now because and that's she just, just who she is. Yeah. And she just keeps making bad choices. I mean, again yeah. and again, uh, we're, we haven't yeah. even gotten into the heartbreaking moments yet, but yeah, Jesus. Yeah. So as, as she and Genesis fly away, uh, Genesis now carrying, um, Trixer, uh, she calls Tattletale, who is very confused that nobody tried to kill her. It's almost as if Tattletale was wrong. Is that possible? That's never happened before. It's never happened. Yeah. So then, after that call, she thinks about calling Gru for reassurances, but it doesn't feel right to her, and she doesn't. Yeah, I think this is more evidence that uh, this relationship is is pretty doomed to fail. Um, because when something bad or, or good happens to me, uh, my partner is the first person I want to call, uh, either for help, for support, or just to talk through things. And I think the fact that she can't let herself do this with Gru is pretty telling on on the state of their relationship and and what it what it is in i think this is another hint that these two guys are just not going to end up together mm -hmm. so while they're flying genesis drops some more traveler's knowledge on us uh, she says they've been together for two years um and only half of the reason they can't split up is noel yeah and again we talk about family again uh they, they talk about they've been here together two years um uh Genesis doesn't know what to call it. I think it's it's Taylor that used the word family, and she's like, well, I, we've been together two years. I don't know what else you call it. But this is, again, focusing on family, and, and this is specifically the family you choose. And Matt, yeah. I have a, a Noel prediction that I'm going to save for the end of the episode. Um, it doesn't help with the only half the reason part of what you said, but I, I'm pretty confident in this one. I think it's a good one. All right, all right. I'm looking forward to it. So Skitter heads back to her territory, and she uses her bugs to gather some clothes and supplies to herself. And for the first time in a while, we see her walk the streets in her identity as Taylor from her own perspective. And I love this imagery that she's perceiving as she walks of, of algae and weeds and rats thriving in the cracks of the city. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of wonderful, thematically rich imagery here, as Taylor kind of ruminates on the end of the world, um, what Jack killing everyone would look like. And, um, and it's not too dissimilar from how the plant life has taken back the world here. And there's, there's a really, there's a lot you can read into this if you want to. You could speculate that, that Taylor, while dealing with the consequences of her actions, is now considering that maybe things would be better if the world ends. Um, you can talk about how the weeds taking back the earth from all the construction and the civilization could be a metaphor for capes, that the existence of capes has upset the status quo and those weeds are spreading, slipping between everything and eventually taking civilization and, and and order and returning it to chaos. There's a whole lot of rich imagery here that I think is pretty freely open to interpretation. Um, those are the things that jumped out at me, but if you interpret it a different way, cool. Yeah, I think that's all very evocative. I, I didn't necessarily see it that way, but um, I, I, I appreciate that perspective. Yeah, so she arrives then at her dad's house. Oh boy. Um, and it's just terribly sad so it turns out that he's had to pawn some of his possessions just to afford food basically and again how the hell is this something that taylor let happen again we've seen her constantly worried about the people of her district and how she has to make sure they're well fed but she has to make sure they have water and power and and how guilty she was every single time she had to leave them to fend for themselves when she had to go do something else and why has this seriousness of protection not extended to her father? Why is he left out of her worry and concern? Why does she only turn to him when she seemingly doesn't have anywhere else to go? It's just such, to me, a, just a total lack of respect for him um, as her parent. And it, it pisses me off. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. And I think we might get into that in a, in, in a minute. But like, why did she even bother coming, you know? Yeah, there'll be opportunity to talk about that in a second. So yeah. I'll just I'll just reference something um, focusing more on Taylor specifically. You're so different, he said. You're standing straighter, dressing like you aren't trying to hide in your clothes, moving with more purpose. I think you've grown too. so many people. They seem like they've been burdened by what's going on. They've given up a little lost important things. That just makes the contrast between you and them that much stronger. I turned around. Was I? I don't feel that much stronger. And then later she, she says, I'm not saying there isn't a change. There probably is. I just, I don't know if I'm better because of it. Yeah, I love this because there's never any easy answers in this story, right? Because Taylor has gotten stronger. Taylor is more confident. She's less of the worm that Cherish saw her as. She's more self-assured and she is generally living a better life um, and trying to be her best self. But what is the cost of this? Um, and, and you can almost see the cost in the description here that she's standing up straighter. Everyone else has given up and lost important things that the contrast between the two of them as Taylor has risen, the, seemingly the rest of the world has descended. Yeah. And we're about to see a perfect example of that kind of lens on Taylor from the outside because she sees a know where you are pamphlet sitting on the table. Yeah, and I think we're just going to pick a, a little important snapshot of, of the pamphlet on Skitter's territory um, that I just love. Yeah, so it just reads, Skitter is an unpredictable young woman tending toward acts of apparent kindness to those she deems her subjects and bursts of sudden and extreme violence toward those she sees as her enemies. <laughs> kind of sounds like a, you and I wrote this pamphlet, huh, Matt? Yeah, yeah, I, I love these pamphlets. Yeah, they're so um, great. Somebody actually made like a... 
GIF of, of one of these. And oh, awesome. really? That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh, again, for the rest of this conversation, um, Taylor is fluidly lying to her dad about almost everything about herself, basically. Yeah. And, and this is the point, I think, when you begin to question, why is she here? Because she doesn't seem particularly interested in his well-being. She's not really here to help him or apologize to him for what she put him through. She just felt guilty because um, for a brief moment, she was reminded of a bond between father and son or father and daughter. Um, and she just had to head here to make herself feel better, I guess. Um, and, and really, the only good thing that comes out of this is her dad forces her to commit to seeing her uh, to seeing him again in a couple days um, to go to the election of the town hall. Um, I, I, part of me doubts that she'll actually keep this appointment, but it feels like set up for something. So I say she's going to. But that's really the only net positive that comes out of this entire thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so at this point, um, Tattletail calls and interrupts them, which is totally a pattern by the way. Yeah, um, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she relates her interaction with Coil, uh, where uh, her power is now giving her a completely different read and suggesting that he doesn't plan on killing Skitter and never did. And then he implicitly threatens her and explicitly warns her that her power isn't as reliable as she thinks it is. Yeah, so basically they're ace in the hole with this whole plan of theirs. Uh, Tattletail's power is, is suddenly completely unreliable coil has found a way to beat it or get around it um perhaps he uses his multiple universes as like a way to confuse how she speculates like he thinks something really hard in one universe and then gets her to speculate on that and then kills it after i don't know something like that would be cool but either way you've got to wonder at this point what hope taylor has now of freeing dinah uh, coil knows what they're doing um and knows how to beat them and he'll continue using them. Of course, he's going to do that. He'll use them until he doesn't need to. Um, and and then he'll cut them off and they won't even be able to sense it coming. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure glad she almost stung a teenager to death for all this. Yeah, it, that was totally a worthwhile trade yep. against someone who can who can uh, uh, decide outcomes as he as he uh, as he describes his power. So, uh, yeah, she goes back in with her dad and she thinks about souls and that if she has one, it's full of holes, and she discovers more holes even as she tries to patch up the ones she's found. And I think this is a real moment of genuine self-reflection and realization in her. And I, I wish I could be more positive of this and say that she's going to learn from this and change her ways, but I just don't, I just don't buy it. I just think she's going to store this away and forget it again until the next time she's feeling low because of her decisions. And then she's going to pull, up, pull it out again and feel sorry for herself. And look, I've been trying to find a way to make myself better. I'm damaged. I don't know what to do. And then she's going to put that away when it's inconvenient for her to do. And it's just, I am so frustrated with her right now. And, and, mm -hmm. and, not, and it, I think it's all very intentional. I think the writing is fantastic. We are supposed to be really frustrated with Taylor at this point. Um, it, it's fantastic, but God, I'm so mad at her. Yeah, I mean, she's she's let herself down. Basically, that's that's where the emotion is coming from. I think, like yeah. this, this was not something that she ever wanted to happen, but she made it happen, and and she has her justifications. But like, she can't even look at those justifications with, with a straight face anymore. And and it's things are kind of really kind of piling up on her. Yeah, and I, I like I said, I hope this breeds change, but I just. I just have so many doubts now that like, because mm -hmm. I think we've been here before. We've been in moments where I've thought 
that this is going to be a moment of real realization for Taylor. Um, and it just, it doesn't seem to work out. It just doesn't seem to stick with her. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this moment. I nodded and turned to leave. I wasn't half a block away from the house before I felt the tears welling up running down my face. I couldn't say whether they were because of my love for my dad or my despair for Dinah. And this might just be my frustration talking, but I can say which one they are, Taylor, because you don't give a shit about your dad. So mean, Scott. So mean to Taylor. (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so mad at her. I understand. Okay, so we move into 15 uh, dot whatever, the Rory interlude. Um, And this is the final uh, chapter, I believe. So Prism arrives at uh, Rory, a.k.a. Triumph's hospital bed. And we learn a little bit about both of them. They both only had a f- uh, they only had a few dates uh, because Prism does not live here, and she's indeed scheduled back to go to New York today. Yeah, there's something just so refreshingly quaint and lovely about their back and forth dialogue here. There's no ulterior motive. Uh, there's no double speak. It's just a couple of teenagers who genuinely seem to like each other joking back and forth. And I think like has been said many, many times before, both on this podcast and without, it really is a welcome reprieve from being inside Taylor's head, especially after the emotional gut punch of the last couple chapters. Like just being able to laugh at some quick flowing fun dialogue was such such a welcome moment for me. Yeah, yeah, that's totally one of my favorite things is this ability to to release release the tension, release the the, the intensity. Yeah. So yeah, um, they're they decide they're going to go for coffee, but Ursa Aurora intercepts them, telling them that there's an urgent department business to attend to. Yeah, and here's the giant bear to ruin all our our less serious fun. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so we learn a little bit more about Prism in the elevator. Being injured puts her in a dark place because it reminds her of an old rift in her family, family, uh, (laughs) where she tore her ACL doing gymnastics and then she stopped being able to live up to her dad's expectations for her as an athlete. Um, And presumably this is what precipitated her trigger. Oh, you mean the trigger that gave her powers for three of her to exist simultaneously? Like her father put so much pressure on her, she wished there could be three of her to meet all expectations (laughs) or something, something like that. Yay for family. <laughs> um, yeah, for his part, uh, Rory couldn't cut it as a baseball player, so his rich dad provided him with a little vial. Family. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so many cauldron capes. Like, we keep more and more cauldron capes, and I think this is, serves as a really a constant reminder of the level of their influence on the world. Um, we seem, in every organization, to find more and more the more we learn about these guys. Yeah, and I, I think we shouldn't be surprised to find them in the Protectorate because we know <laughs> they are the Protectorate. Well, and it, well, I, I was just going to say because the bias of natural triggers is to be villains, actually. Right. Um, yeah. And if Cauldron statistically s- s- does make more heroes, I mean, that's just an assumption. I'm I'm pretty sure that's not a spoilery sentiment. That's just based on what we know. No, that's expect. that's explicit yeah. in the text. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so they exit the elevator and they walk into an argument in progress in the wards HQ. Assault is arguing in favor of going after the undersiders for basically for revenge uh, for the attack on Rory's house. And Miss Malaysia is fronting the, op- the, the opposing side, um, basically saying that this goes against everything the Protectorate stands for. Um, so at, at root, though, we see that Assault is deeply out of sorts over the death of Battery. And maybe he's channeling some of that anger into this. <laughs> so uh, sad. I know. It's, it's heartbreaking. 
that's his name i wish i i do wish in this moment that the assault and battery romance was just done a little bit better i think this would make this moment land a lot more um maybe if we got more time with it maybe if assault didn't come off as kind of creepy at first um this would have worked better um but i mean it works fine on its own but i you just can't help but think maybe just it could have been just a little bit better yeah well i mean on the one hand he is kind of a bad guy like he he was a guy who who was a mercenary who broke people out of you know broke potentially really bad people out of right out of jail and now he's kind of lost what was anchoring him to the protectorate so his his mentality is like pretty bloody-minded in the first place yeah, i guess i get that and i understand that i just yeah. think if we had established that anchor yeah. a little bit better um then yeah. that that would have landed just a little bit more yeah i, I see where you're coming from uh so out of everyone else vista is surprised surprisingly in the take them out camp um and her her reasoning is she's tired of losing people and she sees the undersiders as being a part of that problem um unfortunately it seems that the the protectorate and the wards view the undersiders as being culpable in some sense for a lot of the losses that they've suffered um in some cases i guess it's fair but in others it's unfair but understandable yeah, I'm really interested to see what your thoughts on this argument as a whole are, because on one hand, uh, the undersiders are criminals and the protectorate's job is to take out criminals. But like they said, a key tenet of this arrangement is that they only do this at the consent of the governing body. And now, of course, we know that the governing body is a corrupt system in which the actual controlling interests have um, plans outside of the body itself. But that that's not they just because like we know that they don't and they don't get to act unilaterally they don't get to decide who to take out and when they they as as a rule have to follow orders and and to miss militia's point it's those orders that separate them from the vigilantes roaming the street from the villains to break from those orders and to take revenge it it might solve the problem but it would forsake everything that they stand for um i'm team miss militia in this moment I i don't know about you yeah, um, I, I I think there's even um, well, what's the word C- comparable situations in in real life where cops kind of know that a certain area is controlled by the criminal element, but there's an understanding between the cops and those people that certain activities won't happen. You know, maybe this is more of a thing in the past when when like the mob was bigger. I, I don't know. At least this is what movies have led me to believe. Okay, <laughs> um, but but anyway, like it 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 makes sense. It, it makes a certain amount of sense, especially when you're resource constrained, which they obviously are. And if if they escalate this to open warfare with what they don't really realize, but what is actually like all of Coil's, you know, um, um, minions, uh, then things would get really bad for the city. Actually, yeah. So yeah, they're they're in a bad spot. Like the protectorate is undeniably in a bad spot. So, yeah. So anyway, um, assault suggests specifically attacking Skitter or Hellhound because, um, well, a variety of reasons, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And the most shocking part of all this to me was how Miss Militia admits that in a flat out fight, the protectorate would lose. Um, yeah. she says they'd retaliate. Miss Militia said, and we'd almost certainly lose. We're roughly matched in numbers, we're outmatched in raw firepower, and they have the edge on us in terms of tactical knowledge. And that's like a, a really like big realization moment when you realize that these this gang of kids 
um, has now gotten to a point where the, the combined power between all of them is enough to handle the reigning authority agency of the city. Um, yeah. But they could easily dispatch them, or not? Maybe not easily, but they have the advantage in literally every single element that Miss Melissa just read off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 that definitely stood out to me also as as being like, whoa, things have really shifted now. So yeah, ultimately, uh, Triumph, who, who's our POV at this point, he hasn't really spoken much, but he he comes down on Miss Militia's side, even though he was the one who was attacked, and, and I guess that that uh that counts for a lot. Um, so it kind of seems like the argument is going to wind down, but just in time, Pigot shows up with some folks. Uh, Dragon has arrived in her new replicant form, uh, looking like a very average person with defiant. Yeah, I love the details on how average looking Dragon is. Triumph almost goes up to the line to say so average that it was almost as if she was designed to look as average as possible, <laughs> which, right, of course, right. we know is, is true. Um, but it, uh, Triumph does note there's a beat in here where he says there's something familiar about her face. Um, and I don't know if I'm supposed to know yet what that means or not, but that definitely jumped out at me. Um, I... I love that everyone knows Defiant is Colin immediately. Like for half a second, I thought the book was going to like go on pretending like everyone didn't know who this guy was. And I was about to be like, oh, my God, this is going to be the easiest win in speculations ever. Because this, uh-huh. is, this is most obviously Armsmaster. But luckily, it didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Dragon and Defiant are going to go after the nine dragon doesn't need sleep colin now barely needs sleep at all after carving out most of his body and modifying his brain um and shatterbird is out of the picture and she she had previously been kind of the biggest impediment to dragon Uh, so so they think they can make more progress than other teams have made in the past yeah i can't help but notice how colin has now done to himself uh, a very similar thing that mannequin did to himself remove as much of his humanity as possible um, and kind of turn himself into a monster uh, but it's yeah. it's for the greater good, right? So it's fine. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's something that you could mine quite deeply. This, this idea that he essentially did, essentially, he essentially passed Mannequin's test. Yep. You know, I mean, that was he's he's doing it for for his own reasons, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating character. So yeah, Dragon introduces to them her seven new mobile suits, uh, which all have completely badass names, um, and Dragon can now use all of them at once, quote, because of Defiant's help. Yep, so there's our indication that Colin cracked whatever limitations were in place on Dragon to ensure that only one instance of her existed at the time. I still don't completely trust Dragon, you guys. Um, I know you all got mad at me (laughs) last time. Uh, Hunting the Nine is great. That's good. Um, but but these two could be really dangerous if they decide to turn their target somewhere else. Yeah, I don't know why you'd be worried about the the guy who was arrested for breaking the Endbringer truce and 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 the paranoid AI working together, Scott. I mean, that's completely unreasonable. <laughs> You're gonna get people to yell at us, Matt. <laughs> oh well, yeah. So so it's funny because everyone everyone is like studiously acting normal or, uh, around Defiant but Triumph uh, can't take it any longer and, and he points out that Defiant is obviously Arms Master without actually saying those words um, and Pigot pretty much shuts him down and, and is just like oh so you, you want to deprive us of these armored suits and this powerful cape who's trying to help fight the Nine 
Um, and all the other capes are obviously super uh, eager to ignore it. Uh, though they're not enthusiastic about it, they're just kind of finding their shoes really interesting. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting and very intentional that moments before we were all having an argument about how important it is to follow the rules, to follow the the system that society has set up for us, and to follow that tightly. And when you go on just breaking rules, even if they're for the greater good, um, that leads to problems. And then suddenly we're presented this where the, the director of the PRT is telling them basically to do exactly this, to look the other way, um, to to ignore Arms Master as a criminal, um, so we can use his efficiency in hunting down bad people. And <laughs> it's like, it's like we just had this whole argument about how we have to follow the rules. We have to do as ordered. And then again, we're just, we're just ignoring the law um, for our own benefit. Yeah. And you can see why, you can see why the, 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 the protector capes are, are struggling with, with, yeah. uh, with yeah. lots of things actually, because I mean, Skitter was just talking about the corruption uh, to to flesh out about uh, about all that and um to go right here is is embodying that i think yep yep and i love that um in that moment triumph calls up the difference when he says there's a difference between serving the system and enabling it and he mm-hmm. fully recognized that in doing this they are enabling this they are allowing this to happen this this unquestionably wrong thing this guy who has done wrong who has committed crimes who has broken one of the most sacred truces of this world like out of all the chaos and destruction the only thing that is like actually held together is the Endbringer truce he broke it but we're looking the other way yeah yeah so at the end of this triumph is disappointed that prison didn't speak up uh, so he cancels their coffee plans and bids her farewell yeah, uh, cape relationships do not work is yep. the alternate aim for this arc. Yep, I mean, that's literally the conclusion of the arc. Yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, part of Triumph's problem here as he's, as he's going for a little walk um, is just how much he relates to Arms Master and understands his decisions. He gets it. He's somebody who would have used purchased superpowers to cheat at baseball if he could have gotten away with it. So he, he finds it easy to put himself in Arms Master's position, and that, that's disturbing to him i suppose yeah but he still lets arms master get away with it and and he even acknowledges that by doing that he just became a little bit more like him um and and i love this the way this arc ends triumph goes out into the wreckage of the city sits in the wastelands of brockton bay in the crater created by the bombs that that Pico dropped and looks at the two dead monsters literal monsters uh in crawler and uh, mannequin and sits there staring at them, trying to find, is there, is there a way that I can tell the monsters from the men? Um, and it says maybe it was to find some clue, some sign he could watch out for that would let him identify the monsters from the men. And it's this beautiful moment where he sits there, and it even establishes that he can't sit there for more than five minutes because it might be dangerous because radiation. But he stays there for 15 because he's just desperate to try to find something in this world that allows him to separate between the good people and the bad and he just can't find it because it's not there like you can't there's not black and white like it's all this mess of gray and poor triumph is in the middle of that unsure of what to do yeah and you could apply this question over and over and over again really i mean you 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 can say when you look at panacea when you look at alexandria when you when you look at taylor herself like 
what what is it that you're supposed to see that separates you know a monster from in this case a woman or or in or from a hero for that matter yeah you you look at alexandria you can make a case three different ways i imagine you know it's uh yeah it's it's fantastic it is it absolutely is and i think that's like we so we go through all this taylor stuff and taylor is frustrating us and disappointing us and and making me mad and then we get to this triumph thing and it's almost it's almost like soothing to me in a weird kind of way because it just kind of calms me down and, and levels me and helps realize like yes taylor is screwing up but but this is so hard like it's so hard to try to operate in this world when when these are your choices when these are the situations that you're pre- presented with and yeah i get mad at taylor i think it's deserved i think she did a lot of shitty stuff in this arc but it's not easy to live in this world and it's a lot to put on a person and i don't know if anyone would be capable of making good decisions when these are your choices oh yeah yeah that, that's absolutely true all right scott well that wraps up our beat by beat discussion of arc 15 in toto um so let's move on to those speculations those ju- juicy juicy speculations that uh, everyone's <laughs> looking forward to all right um as far as old ones being proven um I, there's none again. Um, we got confirmation officially in the Triumph arc that Sophia is no longer a member of the wards. Um, but my speculation said she would not be a ward, but would play a part in the story in the future. And we haven't seen the second half of that quite yet. So we can't conclude on that definitively yet. So we'll say half true uh, at this point. Um, I do. Th- I do still think she's going to come back in some way. I think there's still stuff to do with her. Um, okay. So my new one, the one that everyone's been waiting for since I teased it, uh, both on Twitter two weeks ago. It's funny, I'm saying two weeks ago, but I'm time traveling. So it was really today that I tweeted this, but you guys have been waiting for it. Um, Here's what I think. And here's my rationalization. So my guess now is that the travelers as a whole are all cauldron capes. I had to guess that uh, Genesis was one because of Genesis's power being so close to Siberians. But now I'm going to say all of them were. And I'm going to say that Noelle's uh, situation is the result of her particular vial going wrong in some horrible, terrible, terrifying kind of way. Um, and Trickster was the one who uh, suggested to everyone that they get the vials and take the vials. And that's why everyone blames him, because it was his fault. He was the one that forced them or pressured them or guided them into this decision. And look what happened. Um, again, I still don't know how that ties into the that was only half of our problems part. Um, but I don't I also don't think this directly contradicts what I said last week about um, their home being destroyed by an Embringer and them being forced on the run. I think that it slides nicely into it, um, but I'm still not sure on that one. But this one, I'm feeling pretty good on, so. Cool. <laughs> All right, Scott, that's uh, that's great. Uh, that wraps up our co- coverage of Arc 15 Colony. I hope everyone enjoyed our discussion and hearing Scott's reactions. As always, we appreciate your feedback, and we're always trying to improve, so let us know if you have any advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's episode. Yeah, you can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85, that's D-A-L-Y, and Matt's is at modern... It's just more than a mail, guys. It's in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you're not already uh, described, 
subscribed to We've Got Worm, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, and pretty much anywhere else in the world that you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. I'm going on vacation, um, but when I come back, I am recommitting myself to write more about film. I've missed doing it. I haven't been, been prioritizing it in my life, and I'm going to start doing it. So you'll be hopefully seeing a bunch of essays in a few weeks. Awesome. I look forward to it. We also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. If you like what we do here and you want to make sure we keep doing more of it and you want to read those uh, movie articles that Scott's talking about, consider donating $1 a month or whatever else you can afford. Remember that this episode was recorded well in advance. Uh, so if you've become a patron in the last week or so, we will hit you up when Scott returns from his vacation. Yeah, because this two weeks in advance, it's crazy. Like the world could be at war by the time you're listening to this episode and yes. we wouldn't know it. Right. We recorded this on July 5th, just for reference. So. And the world ended on July 7th. Yep, I know. And then we got to listen to the episode. So. Oh, damn it. I, for, I forgot about that part. Shit. <laughs> I hope the world doesn't end. But anyway, um, before the world ends, and if you happen to be on Patreon, uh, make sure you stop by Wildo's page and toss some money there because he's the guy who makes this whole thing possible. And as always, if you are one of those that can't spare any extra cash, we do completely understand. But there are tons of ways to still help us out. Uh, as you're listening to this, I am currently in Norway, and I'm telling everyone I see about Worm and our podcast. <laughs> it's a bit of a problem because I don't speak uh, Norwegian at all, but uh, uh, details. If you listen on iTunes, uh, you could also take a quick moment and rate and review our podcast. That would really help us out. This week's review is from Sammy, who, uh, full disclosure, I know in real life, he's one of my friends. Uh, so this feels like a bit of cheating, but uh, we make the rules and, and I say it's fine. Um, Sammy gives us five stars. You fucking better give us five stars, Sammy. Um, and says, this is my first time reading Worm, and I am reading alongside Matt and Scott. First off, the story is amazing, and having two people who spend so much time breaking things down makes the experience so much better. I can't wait for Worm Wednesday every week. He said first off, but didn't have a second off. That's not... <laughs> Sammy, you... edit your review. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Sammy. <laughs> I appreciate your review. I, I do, too. Oh. I'm just kidding. I'm just giving a hard time. Sammy's a great guy. Thanks, Sammy. And I'll make sure to give you your $20 uh, for doing that next time I see you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. So uh, thanks to everyone who has taken the time to read and review us. Um, that's it for this week. A quick reminder for all the artists out there that uh, there are still two weeks left to submit your artwork for our patron supported fan art contest. Click the link in the show notes for more details. Next week, we're going to start up on Arc 16 Monarch. Uh, at over 90,000 words, this is by far the longest arc we've tackled yet. Uh, so be ready for two very long episodes. Uh, the first one will cover uh, 16.1 through 16.y, uh, the second interlude of the arc. Um, Scott, any speculations on what the arc title means this time? Well, Matt, my guess is that we'll be battling over who will be crowned king or queen of Brockton Bay as the mayoral election, Coyle's plan, and the Undersider's plot to dethrone him all come to a head. That's my guess, at least. All right. Well, uh, we'll see you next Wednesday on another exciting episode of We've Got Worm.